Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello, and welcome back to Madison's Notes. I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and I come to you today with a panel of very distinguished scientists to discuss a growing problem of national, indeed international significance, the politicization of science here in America. Dorian Abbott is an associate professor of geophysical sciences at the University of Chicago and a founding member of the Academic Freedom Alliance. This is his second appearance on Madison's Notes, as he joined me just a few weeks ago to discuss MIT's decision to cancel a lecture they had invited him to give after they faced criticism on social media in response to an op-ed Dorian had written in which he argued that academic hiring should be based on merit. Anna Krilov is a professor of chemistry in the Department of Chemistry at the University of Southern California and a member of the Academic Freedom Alliance's Academic Committee. In June of 2021, she published an essay in the Journal of Physical Chemistry Letters on the peril of politicizing science, which has since been downloaded more than 64,000 times. David Romps is a professor in the Department of Earth and Planetary Science at the University of California at Berkeley. Bernard Trout is the Raymond F. Bador Professor of Chemical Engineering at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He joined us at the Madison program several weeks ago before Professor Abbott's lecture to deliver remarks on the importance of academic freedom. Professors Abbott, Krilov, Romps, and Trout. Welcome to Madison's Notes. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Good to be here. David, I'd, I'd like to start with you, if we may. And a few weeks ago, you announced your decision to step down as director of the Berkeley Atmospheric Sciences Center. This decision came in response to discussions with your colleagues at the center in which it became clear to you that they would not be willing to extend an invitation to Dorian Abbott to speak after MIT canceled his lecture. If you would, could you start from the beginning and walk us through this, your reaction to the cancellation, the discussions with your colleagues and your subsequent decision to step down? Right. Well, what happened was I, I found my face posted at the very top of the Fox News website. That was a bit of a shock to me. <laughs> uh, but if I back up, uh, and if I back up about a year, uh, that would be back in 2020. And uh, Dorian here had stated publicly that he thought that his university should hire based on a, an evaluation of merit and not based on race, gender, or other group identity. And you know, as relative to the distribution of political thought in America, that's about as moderate as you can get on this issue. Uh, the vast majority of Americans would say that race and gender and other group identities shouldn't be used in hiring decisions, even though that might lead to an increase in diversity. And in fact, in my state of California here, uh, the majority of voters agree with that sentiment and upheld a clause in our constitution that forbids our state universities from using uh, gender and race in hiring decisions. So it's a very mainstream view that he expressed, but he got some pretty major backlash to this from students in his department who called his expression of that view aggressive and threatening. 
And that was certainly eyebrow raising. And I, I took note of that. Uh, but the president of the University of Chicago stepped in and uh, put an end to the kerfuffle by declaring that Dorian has the right to express his view. Uh, then fast forward to October of this year and Dorian was slated to give the John Carlson lecture at MIT, a prestigious lecture about his science, about his work studying planets orbiting distant stars, nothing to do whatsoever with his uh, political views. But there was a bit of a repeat where the MIT students and MIT alums uh, made some commotion demanding that his invitation to speak about his science be rescinded because of his political views. And what was different, as you mentioned about this time around, is that the chair of the MIT Earth Sciences Department canceled the lecture in response to those calls. Um, and that, that was astonishing to me that someone who was going to give a talk about their science had that science talk canceled because of their political views. So it certainly got my attention. Um, so this is the beginning of October of this year. I am at the time the director of the Berkeley Atmospheric Sciences Center. And this is a center that studies, as the name would imply, the science of our atmosphere. And we've had Dorian come to visit us to speak about his science back in 2014. Hmm. And uh, his science is excellent and it's of interest to the members here. And so I floated the idea to my colleagues that we invite Dorian now. And I had two reasons for that. One is that and we hadn't heard about his science for some time. I know he's done some very good work since then. And presumably he has a talk ready to go that he would have given at MIT. And the other is that by inviting him now, it would be a way for our center to uh, affirm publicly our principles that we are a scientific institution, not a political one. Unlike MIT's Earth Sciences Department, we are not going to count for people's political views when we extend invitations to scientists to talk about their science. Now, uh, it turned out that in our conversations among the faculty, there was not enough support for inviting Dorian now. And that is fine uh, because in the timing of inviting Dorian now would have been a, a public statement affirming our principles and there's no obligation on any center or institution to publicly affirm its principles, that's fine. Um, but what came out of those conversations is some uncertainty as to whether we could ever invite Dorian again. And again, because of his political views, not because of his science. And, and that to me is, is just unacceptable. And so you, know, you have to understand that as a, a director of a center like that at a university, I'm, I'm not a dictator. Uh, I serve at the pleasure of my colleagues and in, uh, with the acquiescence of my conscience. And at that point, th these two are incompatible with each other. And so I knew I had to resign. And I had two options at that point, I could resign quietly, in which case the rumor mill would start and, and people would know that Professor Romps resigned for some reason having to do with Dorian and other people would write my narrative for me. And that's a, that's a potentially dangerous thing because there's no exaggeration here to say we're talking about an environment in which my colleagues are uh, in some sense blacklisting uh, other colleagues of ours because of their political views. So this is not a this is not a, a theoretical uh, concern. This is actually the, the heart of the matter. And so the alternative was to be public about my resignation. Uh, and that way, if people decided they wanted to cancel me or blacklist me, they'd have to point to exactly what I said uh, and say, this is the reason why. So at least the blacklisting business is out in the open. And so, um, and so I posted 
my resignation letter on Twitter. And I, I can read a few sentences of that, if you don't mind, just to give a sense of um, what it is my, my thinking was. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I read the following. I wrote, uh, the stated mission of our center is to serve as the hub for UC Berkeley's research on the science of the atmosphere, its interactions with Earth systems, and the future of Earth's climate. I believe that mission has its greatest chance of success when the tent is made as big as possible, including with respect to ethnicity, gender, age, disability, sexual orientation, religion, family status, and political ideas. Excluding people because of their political and social views diminishes the pool of scientists with which members of our center can interact and reduces the opportunities for learning and collaboration. More broadly, such exclusion signals that some opinions, even well-intentioned ones, are forbidden, thereby increasing self-censorship, degrading public discourse, and contributing to our nation's political balkanization. Um, so that was my view. I mean, my view is, is one of tolerance uh, for all aspects of, of people, including tolerance for diversity of viewpoints. Um, I put that out there and I continued about my business. And the next thing I know, I get a text from a friend telling me that my head is at the top of the Fox News website. So <laughs> uh, go figure. So when we talk about the politicization of science here in America, what do we mean? Is the research itself political or are only the political views of the scientists being policed? And does the difference really matter? And then I'll add a second part to that question, which is this, just how widespread is this problem, right? We, we have David, we have Dorian. Did we just manage to find the only two people in the nation who have experienced this problem? And I, I saw your hand up there first, so uh, why don't you come on in and, and take a first stab at that? Well, it's a very well-posed question, and um, it the answer is that yes, research itself can be politicized and is politicized and we see it happening every day. Some topics have very direct implications for society and therefore they generate strong public engagement. This is all right. Sometimes regretfully this public engagement degenerates into a partisan confrontation instead of rational debate. So this is unfortunate and we can talk about it, but that's not what worries me right now. What worries me right now and what we observed in the case of Dorian and David is uh, completely different. We see two big problems. First, we see that core principles of science are now become suspect. And we observe an attack on uh, direct um, on the way we do science, scientific approach is declared racist, science is declared colonial, big scientific projects are canceled, telescopes are not built because of the ideological implications. Merit is declared to be tool of oppression and policies are changed to implement this. So this is extremely damaging in my opinion because it undermines the ability of universities to foster excellence, to attract and promote best talent and to do good research. Now, the second problem is more pertinent to what we heard, and it is that now we observe that we censor and ostracize scientists because of their political views or moral stating. And this also becomes institutionalized in some funding agencies' policies, for example. So if we take this, what happened to Dorian, to its logic, logical conclusion, it means that we as a society would not want to hear about solution to clean energy, or another big problem if it comes from someone who voted, say, for Trump or has other unacceptable political view. Or we would reject 
cure for cancer if it comes from someone who committed some moral transgressions. So this is simply absurd, and I think we cannot afford this. Uh, Dorian, did you want to jump in here? The only thing I want to add is I, I think the biologists right now are the ones who seem to be dealing with the most of these issues directly related to their science. Why do you think that is? Well, especially the ones who sometimes will say things like humans are sexually dimorphic. That seems mm -hmm. to be the main fault line where this stuff intersects with science. Yeah. David? I just want to add that from my perspective, as someone who's been in physics and in earth science, I don't see uh, the, I don't see politics as affecting the outcome of individual scientific studies. I do see, of course, you know, the, what Congress decides to fund, the type of work, scientific work they type, they tend to fund, that of course is a political process. And if any individual scientist is going to choose the areas that they work in, maybe based in on part on their, their views or correlated with their views. For example, I work on climate change because of a combination of my understanding of the facts and also my values. Uh, so this combination is, is, is the reason why I work on climate change and not some other field. But when I start working on a study, uh, physics is physics, math is math, two plus two equals four, no matter your political leanings, force equals mass times acceleration, regardless of your political views, right? the, the results don't have any political uh, opinion in there uh, unless there's fraud and fraud catches up to you really fast yeah. in science. And that may be different in, in other fields and Anna could speak to that, but at least in physics and earth science is best I can ascertain, uh, you know, the, the working through the conclusions of a research study, there's no room for political uh, ideas to interfere there. Yeah, uh, Bernhardt, please. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I, I want to just um, add, I mean, there's so much to discuss here, but add maybe the, the broader issue that you brought up. So one of the reasons why I think the examples of Dorian and David here and recently are so important is because they're really the very tip of a very broad and deep iceberg uh, throughout academia. Um, I think that I know we were talking earlier about uh, discussions at universities and by far the majority of scientists in universities, universities supposedly places where unfettered discussion and exploration of ideas can take place, but by far the majority uh, think that, and rightly, and rightly so, that they are very limited in what they can say outside of their very narrow domain, uh, and they self-censor, and, and probably rightly so in a certain sense, because there will be retribution, if not from um, you know, the kind of Twitter campaign, but kind of behind the scenes from administrators that you don't really know what happens or you don't, it, it's, it, you kind of have a feeling, I'm not invited to do this or I'm not uh, asked to participate or I'm not mm -hmm. really, people don't want us involved, but you don't really know what happens. Yeah, uh, Dorian, you want to offer a, a final word on this topic before we move on? I want to push slightly back on David. Uh, so I want to read you from a slide from a recent presentation in our field, Earth Science. Uh, the title of the slide is Decolonial Feminist Science. And uh, it in this includes concepts like no illusion of objectivity, centers relationships as opposed to facts. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it is occurring in earth science. 
Oh, I, haven't, I haven't seen that. <laughs> so that. Those words aren't showing up in the papers I'm reading. I suppose. <laughs> um, all right. So, so what's, I mean, what's driving this politicization? I mean, is, is what we're seeing, are these just politically zealous administrators or activists, faculty members and donors, or is this just sort of the culture we live in that we're seeing politics seep into into everything, into sports and into commercials, and it makes sense that science would follow. What do you all think? Uh, sure, Anna. Yeah, I think there are several groups that drive it, and uh, one big group, which I think is most uh, responsible for what is happening, is the bureaucracy that we created. So it's very simple, follow the money. So universities and tech companies created uh, positions, lucrative positions for diversity officers. Uh, they give out lucrative contracts to companies to develop diversity training modules and assessment tools and so on. So it's a whole industry around issues of diversity and how that should be integrated into scientific enterprise. Now, to give you an example from my university, in the midst of pandemic, with hiring frozen, budget crisis, and so on, we hired chief diversity officer, someone at provost level, uh, who is now leading a small army of diversicrats. So every school at USC have diversity deans and deanless. So the offices are generously staffed. I do not know how many people are involved, but I'm guessing there are dozens or maybe even hundreds of people at USC alone are gainfully employed to serve the diversity. So this creates a problem. This army of people has strong financial investment and interest in the idea that our universities are breeding grounds of racism, sexism, and discrimination. So this DI industrial complex has become a driving force of politicizing the science. I think you just invented an absolutely brilliant phrase there, the diversicrats. That's that's really wonderful. You should trademark that and we'll get t No, I cannot take credit for that. I actually found this. I read about, uh, I saw this term in a book uh, called um, uh, Dubious Expediency. That uh, is a collection of essays that describe the evolution of uh, uh, identity politics in admissions and university practices dating back to 70s. It's extremely uh, enlightening reading that uh, gives a very broad background of what we observe now. Yeah, Dorian. Just to build off what Anna was saying, I think one of the key reasons why focusing hiring on merit is important is because when you take the focus off merit, you inherently introduce a political element. So now, just to give you a simple example, if we want to uh, make a dual uh, goal increasing diversity, you immediately have the question, which diversity? Do we need mm -hmm. a woman or do we need a racial minority? Do we need a veteran or do we need someone who comes from a poor background? And immediately you have a discussion that's political rather than science-based. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's exactly right. Uh, David, please. I just want to emphasize that, you know, the goal here for many people is to reduce racism. And I think that's a, a wonderful and laudable goal. The nation has obviously a horrific history of racial injustice and ongoing racism. I guess the concern for me is when an issue becomes the most important thing and then gets elevated above the principles of our liberal democracy, mm. that's where we run into trouble. And we've seen this in the past many times, of course, in history, uh, for example, when the most important thing was winning World War II or when the most important thing was winning the Cold War. And that last one is an example that resonates 
with me at the University of California, Berkeley, because in 1950, it was decided that a loyalty oath would be administered to the faculty at the University of California. And that oath said, I hereby state that I am not a member of the Communist Party. And you had to sign that oath in order to continue your employment as a faculty member at the university. Now, several faculties stood up and said, well, I, you know, I'm not a member of the Communist Party, but I don't want to sign this oath because this is trampling on the ideas of, of freedom of expression and freedom of association, which are bedrock principles of our liberal democracy. And, um, and so 31 of them made a stand and refused to sign on principle and were fired. Wow. Now, we reflect back on that that moment, and we, you know, we regard that that spasm of cancellation. It was literal cancellation; they were fired uh, as a pretty dark and shameful episode in American history. That whole McCarthyism uh, that swept the nation, and the thirty-one who didn't sign are celebrated for their courage today. In fact, one of them went on to become the president of the University of California. Hmm. So I, you know, very often these causes are extremely laudable uh, and are causes that many of us support. But if they're taken so far as to trample on our basic operating principles, that's where we run into real problems and where the history books are not kind uh, to those infractions. Yeah, very good. Uh, Bernhardt, would you like to come in here? Yes, thanks. I, I wanted to also maybe bring up the, the bigger picture, which is that universities starting from the 60s, maybe earlier, have um, continually and increasingly been pervaded with, I'd say, a spirit of nihilism, mm. maybe a decayed form of nihilism. And so the, the tenets David mentioned, and I know you want to talk further about uh, liberal democracy and its connection with science, but they no longer believe in the tenets of liberal democracy or really the power to justify any beliefs. So in its extreme, they think these are, um, the, these are arbitrary and can't be justified. Now, in reality, no one perhaps psychologically goes that far, but that's at least the, the direction in which they go. And the consequence of that is that they have to defend their beliefs and the administration therefore uh, defends and promotes their beliefs or maybe their political views uh, and doesn't need to listen to what other people have to say and doesn't think that they really have anything else to say. David, you, you started to introduce this, this historical angle here, and I want to lean into it, right? Because whether it was George Santayana or Winston Churchill or someone else, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it, we're told. So what is the history we should learn from here about the history of politicized science, either in this country or others? And Anna, you've written really powerfully about your personal experiences on this. So I'd like to turn things over to you here. Mm -hmm. There are indeed many, many lessons from history from many different countries, but uh, I'm most comfortable to talk about my own experience and history of my former country, USSR. So let me share some points and I will leave it to the listeners to make parallels with what we observe now. Yeah. So science and scientists were watched and scrutinized by the Communist Party ideologues very closely from the very beginning of the country from 1917 and all the way to the bitter end in the 90s. So uh, there was a structure around it. Every institution had a department entrusted with ideological control. 
of what institution was doing. So this control manifested itself in several ways. First, the ideas that were not aligned with Marxist ideology were suppressed. Same goes for scholarship classified as Western influences. So entire disciplines were declared bourgeois pseudoscience and research in these areas was barred for years. Examples include genetics, cybernetics, which is now computer science, certain ideas in physics and list can go on and on. So this created lasting damage and direct economic impact. The most famous example known in the West is Lysenkoism. Lysenko was an agronomist. He was a poster child of people scientists because he came from a family of poor peasants. He had the right pedigree. And the press, for example, was lovingly called him barefoot scientist. So Lysenko was hostile to Western ideas. And truth be told, he was not very educated. He rejected Mendelian genetics because it was, in his opinion, inconsistent with Marxist ideology. He mocked and rejected scientific method as Western influences, such bourgeois ideas as control groups and statistics, for example. He promoted Marxist ideas that by exposing crops or people to that matter to right stimuli, you can shape them into anything you want. You can teach orange trees to grow in Siberia. This was, of course, a total pseudoscience, but the party liked these ideas, and Lysenko and his bogus science were backed by the government. So his opponents were fired, and many, including famous geneticist Vavilov, perished in Gulag. As a direct result of what became known as Lysenkoism, crops yield decreased dramatically, millions of people died of starvation, and the consequences propagated uh, for many decades. So the second way of ideological intrusion into science was suppression of scientists on the basis of their identity or beliefs. So most common was class. If you were not born into a working class family, your prospects were very limited. Open exercise of religion was enough to shut down education or professional advance or get one into jail. Institutions, universities and research institutes were obsessed with their demographic makeup. And the makeup was controlled by quotas. For example, Jewish kids, for Jewish kids, it was nearly impossible to get into physics or mathematics programs. Why? Because having too many Jewish faces among mathematicians did not represent the demographic makeup of our great nation. So I learned about existence of quotas relatively late at my first day at the university. My dreams were to study chemistry. I uh, applied to chemistry department at Moscow State, passed the exams, and was duly admitted into the program. And it so happens that I learned from my high school friend that chemistry department has a special track for theoretically oriented students, and that it's very hard and advanced. So I had no idea what it was, but I signed up for this program, more or less on a dare, because my friend told me that it's too hard for girls to keep up. So here I am on the first day of classes, meeting my classmates for the next five years, about 30 of them, and uh, we talk. So the first surprise was there was indeed only six girls out of 30. But the second surprise was much bigger. I discovered that most kids were Jewish, and it came in a very direct way. As we were talking about uh, our dreams, I was telling how much I'm excited about chemistry and how I cannot wait to get into the chemistry lab. Then uh, another girl who later became my best friend, she told me her story. She said, Anna, 
I hate chemistry. I do not want to touch any chemicals and I do not want to be here. I want to study mathematics. But look at me, she said. I'm obviously Jewish in my appearance and my family name is Jewish. So I have zero chance to get into physics and math department. And then I heard variations of the story over and over and over, more than 20 times. So I still remember shock I felt. So only those who have a right degree had full range of opportunities to advance professionally. But those lucky ones, like myself, had to show active political engagement. And this was absolutely mandatory for professional advance. And uh, one had to do it literally from the kindergarten. I remember we had the slogan in the first grade displayed in our classroom that read, who is not with us is against us. And God helps those who is against. One had to be a member of communist organizations appropriate for your age, from the first grade and till uh, adulthood. One had to actively participate in political events such as May and November celebrations and in organized public exhibits of outrage against the West. The dissidents were severely punished. Most famous example known in the West is Sakharov, father of nuclear arms program, who was oppressed, who opposed nuclear arms and spoke for human rights. So despite his famous status, he was ostracized, subjected to the internal exile and so on. He was later recognized by Nobel Peace Prize for his activism. But there are many more examples that we do not know about. They were simple people whose careers were ruined. Those who spoke up against regime were jailed and sometimes subjected to psychiatric treatment. So in fact, political disagreement with the regime was classified as a symptom of psychiatric disorder. So the result of this ideological control of everything, including science, is well known. Despite vast resources, USSR lost the Cold War, crumbled and collapsed. Government control over science with this political control was a grand failure. I am reading a book about Soviet space program, and this story alone shows the dangers of politicization of science. Despite the initial leading position and trailblazing successes with Sputnik and Gagarin, in about 10 years, the Soviet space program fell hopelessly behind the American one. So the country itself, the USSR, is no longer on the map. Is that simple? Today, Russia is hopelessly behind the West in technology, in science, and quality of life. So we must remember this lesson. Yeah, well, thank you for that, Anna. Um... Of course, the, the framework we've been talking within tonight is, is one in which apolitical science is the ideal, right? And some will just reject that premise entirely. They'll say science simply cannot remain apolitical. What is researched in our labs and at our universities, they say, can and will have ramifications for our culture, our politics, even our civilization even at a more practical level, and, and David, you alluded to some of this, when institutions are awarded government grants or asked to give policy recommendations to government officials, the scientific and the political necessarily collide. So here's the question in a very crude form. Apolitical science, fact or fiction? Dorian, please. Goal. Goal. Oh. Apolitical science, goal. So cool. don't let don't let the uh, perfect be the enemy of the good. Well taken, uh, Bernhardt. Would you like to add to that? Sure. I I would maybe 
say it a little differently or give a bit of a different take on the issue, which is that um, science, as you mentioned, you know, is related to politics and it has been from the beginning. Uh, it's a grand, you could say, political philosophic project in the world, um, starting in the Western world, but with the intention of spreading throughout the world. And I think maybe, I mean, our colleagues can speak for themselves, but the objective perhaps is, let's say, a, a science which avoids extreme partisanship because I don't think that one can have a purely apolitical science. We can elaborate upon that, but I sketched out some of the reasons. And so then the goal is we should be open to speak about it, to speak about different directions, uh, to debate the various maybe political aspects, uh, but in doing that, avoid extreme partisanship. So that's why expression, open expression, in, you know, against cancellation is the proper approach. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, David, please. I just want to emphasize that I think that the, the, again, the process of choosing what research to be funded or to do is going to have a political element to it always. Right. And on the back end, how the scientific results are used by the media, by other folks, by politicians, that will also have an element of politics to it. Where our goal should be, as Dorian says, or where <laughs> we should strive is in that middle part where we're actually doing the science that should be free of politics. And it's so important that it be free of politics that we, and even, you know, obviously free of the very overt kind of uh, political uh, interference that Anna just uh, detailed and also free of the, uh, you know, exclusion of folks because of their political ideas outside of the scientific realm that all needs to stop. Uh, and it's important not only because that makes the science better but also because without that, the public uh, loses faith in what the scientific enterprise is doing. And already we see that. We see that from uh, the Gallup poll that shows recently that only 45% of Republicans trust science. And what a, what a complete disaster that is. Uh, again, math is math, physics is physics. Uh, we have to have as a public confidence in those results. Otherwise, our bedrock of facts upon which our democracy uh, lies is, is it crumbles. And in my field, in, in climate change, you know, it's an issue I'm, like I said, I'm very concerned about. And I think that everyone needs to understand basic facts about this problem. But you go look at what people know. Again, uh, most recent Gallup poll looking at Republicans, only a third of Republicans know that humans are warming the planet. And we can't even begin to address this, this crisis unless we all understand that the problem is even there and happening. And a big part of that is just ensuring that people have confidence in the science that's being done. Uh, Dorian, a, a few days ago, uh, you wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal explaining what you believe, the beliefs that led to the social media mob taking up their proverbial pitchforks. Among these beliefs, and I'm, I'm quoting you here, I believe that admissions and faculty hiring at universities are best focused on academic merit with the goal of producing intellectual excellence, end quote. Most parents of students who are applying or getting ready to apply to college would probably hear that or read that and think, wait, is that not what's happening now? So can you tell us just how corrupted 
is the admissions and the hiring process. If, if it's not being done by merit, how are students admitted and professors hired in the hard sciences today? Well, for undergraduate admissions, I think everyone knows that it's not completely merit and that's, that's on the table and uh, well known. So there's the, I think it's called the Backey decision from 1978 that for admissions, you're allowed to take into account uh, things other than merit in order to ensure some sort of quality of the overall education for everyone. And so I think everybody, I don't think, I think most parents would be aware of that situation. Uh, in certain states, including California and a few other states, that's not permitted, but in most states that's going on openly. Uh, in terms of the higher level hires, uh, I guess postdocs and faculty, I would say it's meritish. It's hmm. uh, correlated with merit, but not perfectly correlated with merit because other things are being taken into account. And the particular things right now that are popularly taken into account are uh, race and sex characteristics. However, there are other things that are being sort of under the table taken into account, which David's alluded to a few times, which relate to uh, sort of political opinions because people with certain opinions are being driven out of the process. And so you can say that that's influencing whether we can actually do a merit evaluation if a certain population is, is not actually feeling comfortable enough to participate. Yeah, and what about for graduate students? I'm, I'm curious there, what's, what's the experience there for the admissions process? I would again say meritish, correlated with merit, but not 100% uh, merit. Sure. Yeah, Anna, please. Well, there are entire programs funded by uh, big uh, agencies, National Science Foundation and now Department of Energy that uh, earmarked to diversity students. And uh, in this way, uh, grad you can get graduate fellowship, not necessarily based on the basis of your merit, but based on your diversity status. So uh, faculty candidates nowadays in most places are expected to provide diversity statement that has the same feel as this uh, OS that uh, David has mentioned. And, uh, um, you know, in many places, this diversity statements, commitment to diversity, they are used to ferret out the candidates that can identify themselves as the diversity candidates because it's still illegal to directly ask them that, but in diversity statement, you can say this. And uh, in some places, they actively used to trim and remove the candidate. And I heard some pretty scary statistics about University of California, where you know big part of the pool of faculty candidates was uh, nixed before their merit was evaluated just on the basis of their diversity statements. And uh, I also looked at uh, how these diversity statements are evaluated and what students and postdocs are expected to write there. And it's a very, you know, very narrow uh, set of beliefs and ideas that make uh, successful diversity statements. So if you write something like, oh, I will just treat everyone the same and will try to be the best teacher, you will be ranked the lowest in the diversity scale. <laughs> and that's official. You can find this rubrics about UC Berkeley. It's available online, so it's not secret. Bernhardt, as I mentioned uh, in your introduction here, you were kind enough, and I should probably add brave enough, uh, to join us at the Madison program and offer a few remarks about the importance of academic 
freedom. Uh, and again, that was at Dorian's lecture he delivered for the Madison program, supposed to be the Carlson lecture at MIT, and all listeners can find a link to that in the show notes. I encourage everyone uh, to listen to Dorian's lecture, uh, but, but also certainly to listen to Bernhardt's uh, remarks. But one thing you said there, Bernhardt, struck me as particularly important, and I'm quoting you here. Science only thrives within liberal democracy, and liberal democracy is only successful with modern science, end quote. Now, the first part of that equation we've covered to some extent today, so I'd love to get you to say a little bit more about the second half of that. Why is modern science important, perhaps especially important in a liberal democracy? Sure, and I, I should say I'm, I'm not sure if it took much uh, bravery to say those few words. Uh, I think Dorian and David and Anna and others have been much more brave in that regard. But I did want to let you know that I got many, many emails shortly thereafter that day or that day after. And maybe it was just a self-selected group, uh, but they were all positive. Wow. So uh, we'll see what happens after this podcast. But <laughs> anyway, um, to answer your question, uh, so the basis of liberal democracy is an understanding of human nature in that we are by nature free and equal. In order to live in civil society, we give up a minimal amount, but some of our freedom uh, to be able to live with others. And so the idea is that this is the understanding of human nature and a society that promotes what is intrinsically our nature, freedom and equality as defined as such, uh, is a more just society. Now, there's a couple kind of intrinsic problems with nature. One is scarcity. So if we have scarcity, then we have to fight over very small amount of, I guess, a small pie, as one might say. Uh, the other issue is that uh, people can believe in spooky things and come up with um, ideas, let's say cultish ideas, uh, which can lead to war, we can war over them. And so the idea then is that science will address both of these. It'll address scarcity. And by the way, a major aspect of science and liberal democracy is promoting health, uh, which also enhances our freedom and also freedom of movement, transportation and all these things. Okay. And then on the other hand, uh, because or partly because we will uh, have this uh, relief from scarcity uh, and also we will be able to have freedom of discussion of our ideas. So there won't be, the idea is there won't be such a polarization mm -hmm. and science will help promote therefore freedom and equality because of uh, those two reasons. So reducing scarcity and uh, freedom of expression because of science as such as something subject that we should all be able to talk about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's very good. Uh, would anyone else like to chime in there? Uh, I recently read a book by Yuval Harari, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, and it documents in a very detailed way 
exactly what David just uh, summarized concisely, the role of science in solving problems of scarcity and diseases, and also by increasing the pie, by creating technologies such as intensive agriculture and others, science uh, led, created the situation for societies to become more peaceful and tolerant and to improve the overall um, quality of life for everyone in the world, not just for developed societies. So there are many examples of science, what science gave us, right? We can go like for several hours talking about all the advances in medicine. Science gave us penicillin, insulin, birth control, fertilizers. So science recently gave us COVID vaccine. That's why we can go back to life as normal, right? So there is um, the science will help us to find solution to climate change and to clean energy solution, but we need to let science to be conducted in the best way and not handicapped by ideological control. So we can really fully benefit from its potential. Thinking about academic freedom, if there is a right to academic freedom, if, if this is something that all professors, all students ought to be able to exercise on a college campus, what are the corresponding duties? That is, what, what principles ought to inform the truth-seeking process in the sciences? Are they the same principles that ought to guide academic freedom in any field, or are they different in any way in the hard sciences? Uh, yeah, Dorian. I want to make a general comment about this, because when people raise this point, I often hear them saying, you have academic freedom as a right, but you have a duty to limit your academic freedom in the following ways or to limit what you talk about. And so I wanna take a contrarian and maybe provocative stance. And so what I would say is the fact that we as tenured faculty have this academic freedom, our duty is to use it to say anything, to mm. never hold back because mm. all the guys that I played baseball with in high school who are now in jobs where they, you know, they have to limit what they say and we owe it to all of them to actually speak out and to actually use it. So that's what I would say the duty is. Well put, Dorian. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, I'm seeing, I'm seeing lots of head nods here. Would, would anyone else like to add to that or is, is that a takeaway that the duty is to, uh, yeah, Anna? Well, uh, so people uh, sometimes, you know, bring this, uh, uh, false conundrum, I think, uh, to this um, uh, point, like, you know, you cannot just go and say nonsense, there is some responsibility. And I would say, no, you have constitutional right to go around and say nonsense. And you have excellent mechanisms in science to separate nonsense from non-nonsense. And if I am, as a professor of chemistry, go around and talk nonsense about phlogiston theory and you know challenge mass conservation law, uh, I will be very soon identified by my professional community as being not uh, up to the um, uh, level, professional level. And we have mechanisms to ensure that. So talking nonsense professionally will not get you far. And the mechanisms that are currently in place are dealing with that very well. So when I talk nonsense as a private citizen about something that I do not know about, well, it's my right. And when I do that, you know, my professional work should not be affected by this because I can be an excellent chemist, but uh, uh, let's say very questionable linguist or 
political sciences, so you know, can be completely uneducated in the questions of biology. So uh, that's how I see this dichotomy. Right. Yeah, uh, David, please. I just want to echo again what, what Dorian said. I mean, all, all four of us here are tenured faculty members. And with tenure, with that great privilege, comes the responsibility to speak out. I mean, that's what tenure is for. And I'm reminded of the emails that I got in the wake of my head showing up on the Fox News website uh, from students at my university who said to me, thank you for doing that. And I, let me tell you my story. My story is that I cannot speak out on this campus, I'm afraid. I tiptoe through my college years, afraid that I'll say the wrong thing, afraid of actually expressing myself uh, because there's a real fear of being ostracized. Hmm. And that's the exact opposite of what a university experience is supposed to be about. And so it really is, I think, incumbent upon faculty, especially tenured faculty, uh, to uh, demonstrate a, a tolerance for a wide variety of views and to, uh, to stand up for, uh, uh, academic freedom and free speech. Certainly. Uh, Bernhardt. Yeah, so I, I agree with uh, the points. I, I want to elaborate perhaps upon one aspect of that. I think tenured faculty members in particular have a duty to speak up. Um, really the theme of the introduction to Dorian's talk at, at the Madison program, rescheduling of it, uh, was why scientists in particular don't do that. And there is this element of fear. And I talk to colleagues and they say, I'm not gonna say anything about this. I don't agree with it, but I'm not gonna say anything. And you shouldn't either. Keep your head in the sand. And I think that they are not doing their duty. Uh, and I think they're letting this very small amount of fear, which is real, we sense it here, but it is, pretty moderate given that they have tenure in these institutions. And so I think they're not doing their duty. Yeah. You know, if I'm remembering correctly, Bernhardt, you had this wonderful line, which was the, and I'm paraphrasing here a little bit, but the scientists will say, well, I'm a researcher. I'm a scientist. I'm a biologist. I'm a chemist. I don't, I don't deal with this free speech stuff. These are culture war issues. And he said, yeah, that's true. You may be a, a, a scientist. You may be a chemist, but you're a human being. And these are human concerns. Yes, exactly. And I think part of the issue, as, as I said, is that you know, scientists just take for granted that science will be important in, and the liberal democracy will survive and will mm. continue to thrive. I mean, Anna, I think, gave a very clear uh, description of what it can become. Uh, and which we certainly hope it won't. So why would we allow it to go in that direction? Uh, it should go the opposite direction. And yes, uh, and I think that scientists need to really be pressed into at least understanding that they have a duty uh, to, to speak up and not just stick in their head in and focus on their very, very narrow discipline. Yeah, uh, Anna, did you wanna come back in there? Yeah, I just wanted to uh, say that I also get about 300 plus emails in response to my viewpoint. Wow. And uh, what was shocking is to see the extent of fear in the community mm -hmm. and how many emails were saying that, thank you for doing it. And 
I, I cannot, you know, I cannot speak up. I feel that it can have uh, horrible consequences for my career. And uh, this fear was uh, represented at all career stages, from students to tenured professors, to professor emeriti. Mm-hmm. And uh, a number of females actually said that not only people are afraid to speak up their opinions and sometimes feel compelled to articulate politically correct opinions, even if they do not believe. So they were feeling that if they do not speak up, they will be put in the category and attacked and ostracized. And uh, you know, they had to say what they do not believe, but in order to uh, maintain their status and i think it's unacceptable yeah i've I've heard the distinction made once that an authoritarian stops you from saying what you believe but a totalitarian demands you say things you don't believe and it seems like that's that's where we're headed dorian yeah i just wanted to mention i've also gotten a very large number of emails like that uh from within the field hundreds from across society thousands at this point And one thing I wanted to bring up was from within the field, I've gotten maybe dozens of emails from people who created an anonymous account and they didn't even want me to know what their name was to to tell me their stories. And then the other thing I wanted to share, which plays off what Anna just said, Michael Powell, the reporter at the New York Times who covered my story and has covered a lot of these stories, this is sort of his beat. When he covered the... uh, the situation at Smith College, he only got one faculty member in the entire college to speak on the record to him. Wow. He only got about half dozen to speak off the record, okay? After that article came out, there was a college-wide faculty meeting that where this article was denounced. The one who spoke on the record told him who was denouncing it, and it included a number of the people who spoke to him off the record and said how they were upset about this situation. <laughs> all right, we're starting to, to run short on time here. So I'm just going to put one more question to all of you. I think at this point, we've probably, hopefully, at least in my opinion, we have done at least two things, which is one, we've shown that the politicization of science is a problem. We shouldn't let that happen. And two, We've shown that it is happening here in America now. As I mentioned, the eminent mathematician, Serge U. Kleinerman, warned on this podcast a year ago, it will happen soon, and it has happened. So what should be done? Uh, Dorian, I know you offered a very comprehensive uh, account of what should be done the last time we spoke. So I'd love to hear from you again, but certainly uh, Bernhard, David, Anna, anything, anything you have to, any advice you have to give? I guess I'll, I'll start. So I think the two most important things are to get something like the Chicago Principles for Free Expression adopted on every campus, and also something like the Calvin Report, which says that the institution will maintain neutrality on social and political issues so that the individual faculty and students have uh, feel the freedom to uh, press their issues as hard as they want, their opinions as hard as they want. And so how to have that happen I think uh, the alumni need to speak up and the public needs to speak up, especially since they're funding, you know, ultimately a lot of this research and a lot of the universities, even the private universities through federal grants and student loans. And so uh, that's all. 
yeah bernhard yeah actually dorian said what i was going to say too uh i think that uh those two, the Chicago principles and the principles in the Calvin report should be adopted. Uh, we're actually, tr a large group of faculty at MIT are trying to do just that. Um, and there are various mechanisms. Uh, and, I, and I guess the other thing, just to emphasize that Dorian mentioned, I think one of the reasons why this has been such a big thing at MIT is not so much because of the faculty, although a bit, but I think tremendous, there was a tremendous response from the alumni. And they've typically just not been that engaged except for mm. sending a check every year to be used, however. And so I think the alumni should get a lot more engaged in such things. So both points I think are, I fully agree with. Can I follow up on that and say, if you are an alumnus or an alumna listening, do not write a check for an unrestricted gift. Uh, don't just give the money to the university and let them do whatever they want to it and, and make sure they know that your gifts are dependent on ensuring academic freedom. Well, I think we also should uh, put some effort into educating our colleagues and students and postdocs about uh, principles of liberal epistemology and uh, something that practicing sciences kind of usually do not uh, think often. And I never had to think myself about like how we do science and why we do it this way. But now it's a time to revisit it. And I would encourage uh, faculties talk to their students and review Mertonian principles of science. They are very simple and very specific. And you know, we can summarize them as communalism, as disinterestedness and universality, which uh, among other things means that scientific truths, scientific facts should be evaluated by their merit and not on the grounds of the identity of the scientists. So many smart people thought about this questions and uh, developed uh, these principles that summarize uh, principles of liberal enlightenment and uh, have been proven by, you know, couple of centuries of success by Western science that they are uh, working. Another uh, great resource is the Constitution of Knowledge book by Rauch that also describes how, you know, science and science enterprise uh, is operating and what are the key principles. So I think uh, this is something we can do to make people aware about uh, some of the undercurrents that we experience and you know, some of the attempts to dismantle science and to undermine the core principles such as scientific principle like merit-based evaluation and so on. So yeah. education hopefully can undo some of the damage that already occurred. Absolutely, uh, Dorian. Just to follow up on that, I think once you get to a crisis, a speech crisis, like I had uh, associated with the Carlson lecture or like David experienced within his department, it's too late. And mm -hmm. so, and so uh, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education has a program that they can work with universities to uh, uh, bring out for the students as part of the orientation and training, which just explains what academic freedom is and why it's important and why tolerating other people's opinions, even if you disagree with them and even if you think they're morally reprehensible is an important part of being a, a university community member. And so that sort of a training could be part of the orientations for both uh, undergrads grad students, and even for faculty and postdocs. 
Yeah, that's an excellent idea. Uh, Bernhardt. Yeah, just along those lines, I, I guess uh, we should have said it earlier that every university needs something like the James Madison program. Amen. Uh, so uh, I think that there are programs like yours. Yours was, I don't know if it was exactly the first, depends on where you start, but it's certainly one of the first very big and influential ones. Uh, given the general state of decay of liberal arts education, as Anna said, learning about uh, the foundations of, I guess, use, use the term liberal epistemology or liberal democracy, uh, that's kind of left to programs like yours and, and other programs. And um, we, we actually have something like that here. We had something called the Benjamin Franklin Project. Uh, our administrators, perhaps because something I said, decided to shut it down. Uh, but we continue to teach classes. Uh, we'll see. Maybe after this, uh, they'll take away my, my class on ethics. Uh, we'll see. But uh, um, we continue to teach that to over 10% of the MIT undergraduates. Great. Well, uh, thank you to all of you for, for joining us here today on Madison's Notes for this discussion of what is really just a it's, I think, one of the biggest problems we're facing right now. I don't think that's, that's overselling it. Uh, it has serious implications ranging from the personal to national security implications. I'm just so grateful that all of you have taken the time to join me here today on Madison's Notes for your courageous witness and also for all the excellent work you're doing both on this topic and in your respective fields. So really, thank you all for joining me here today on Madison's Notes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There you have it, Madisonians, an all-star lineup to discuss academic freedom and the politicization of the hard sciences here in America. Our guests were kind enough to pass along some important resources for those of you who'd like to learn more about this issue and perhaps help out in some way. So be sure to check out the show notes for this episode, where you'll find all sorts of important and interesting stuff. That's all we have time for today. Thanks so much for joining us, and I hope to have you back with us next time here on Madison's Notes.